Hi everyone and welcome to the Spencer Lodge podcast with our awesome partners in the Jahi events. More about them much later on in the show, so go check them out. All right, tonight's guest. I'm excited about this one. Oh, here we go, here we go. A former special agent in the States. Brilliant. United States Secret Service for over 12 years. Wow, what are we going to learn tonight? Um, she was on the Presidential Protective Division for President Barack Obama and Michelle Obama. Also protected George Bush, Bill Clinton, both the Bushes actually. During her career, she was a criminal investigator. She worked undercover and was an interrogator for the Secret Service Elite Polygraph Unit. They're highly trained in the art of lie detection, human behavior and cognitive influence. Her heroic efforts as a first responder during 9-11 terror attacks at the World Trade Center earned her a U.S. Secret Service Valor Award. She's now a multimedia journalist, shedding light on national security and law enforcement issues. She's also an adjunct professor for the City University of New York, where she teaches criminal justice and criminology. In her recent book, Becoming Bulletproof, which was launched in March of this year, Evie teaches readers how to protect themselves, strengthen their mental resilience and confidence, read people, influence situations and live fearlessly. I'm really excited to have on the show, Evie Pompurus. Cue the music. Let's do this one. Evie, thank you so much for coming on the show. I've got so many questions to ask you tonight, but first of all, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for being on this podcast this evening. Thank you so much, Spencer. I appreciate you having me on and I really look forward to it. Now, I've been asking my, my audience today to, to send me questions to ask you, and so I'm going to ask you some of their questions today as well. But for those people that haven't heard of you, maybe you can just introduce yourself and give us, give it, give us your elevator pitch. My elevator pitch. Well, I started off my career in law enforcement. I'm a former U.S. special agent with the Secret Service, and um, I protected presidents. I actually started under the Clinton administration and protected Clinton, President Bush Jr., and then President Barack Obama. I was actually on his personal detail, which means I was with him around the clock. But then I've also protected all, essentially almost all the other presidents, because when you're a former president, you get protection for life. And in addition to that, I worked cases, a lot of complex investigative cases. The U.S. Secret Service has jurisdiction over very complex crimes. In addition to that, I was an interrogator. I gave the polygraph exams for the U.S. Secret Service. There was a small group of us, and uh, I did interviews related to the cases that we worked. But then I would also help local police departments around the country uh, with their cases when they had a case they were stuck on and I would come in to say, okay, let me see if I can get a confession or let me see maybe you're talking to the wrong person altogether. In addition to helping with uh, polygraphs or interviews related to intelligence, threats, anything like that. And then after about 13 years, I went into the into journalism, into TV. I, uh, I was offered an opportunity to work as a contributor, national security contributor, talking about crime, talking about incidents all over the world. And then from there, I went to journalism school and began a career in television. I'm a co-host on a show called Spy Games on Bravo TV. I work in front of and behind the camera on different projects. And I recently authored a book called Becoming Bulletproof, Protect Yourself, Read People, Influence Situations, and Live Fearlessly. There's my elevator pit. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. Okay, great. Now, I was watching some content of yours, and this is my guess. For, for a young girl to want to join the, the police force, was, was there a tomboy in there growing up? 
I was, I was. And I actually started in the New York City Police Department first. Um, there was, but you know, I also was very, I, you know, as a kid, you get bullied, you get picked on. We grew up in a very high crime area. My parents, uh, they were immigrants. They came from Greece. We, they moved to the United States, to New York. So we lived in what they call low-income housing, which means it's subsidized by the government, which means there's a lot of crime and it's a very, not a great area. It's poor, low economic. And so we grew up with a lot of hardships. And for me, you know, everything was about be careful with this, be afraid of that, don't do this, stay in the house. I mean, we didn't even play outside of the house. And for me growing up, rather than becoming more afraid, I became more resilient, you know, more kind of like, I don't like this. I don't want to work this way. I don't want to live this way. And I wanted to kind of give myself the tools to protect tools to protect myself and my family. And it just slowly, naturally, it kind of went into that direction. But I also had a stint um, interning when I was in college for a congresswoman, um, a politician here in, in uh, New York. And I worked for her for free for two years. I interned for, interned for her. I was only supposed to do six months, but I was helping her constituents, meaning the people that lived in her district would write in with problems. And I was part of the, the solution and helping them resolve problems. So I kind of came into this place where of public service and helping people, and then wanting to protect uh, and protect people. And, and I think it's slowly kind of like serendipitous, you know, the serendipity of it. I never thought I'd be in law enforcement ever, last person. And life sometimes leads us in this direction. And I just ended up being like, you know what? I'm going to apply the, to be a police officer in the New York City Police Department and just see where it goes. When you, when you started in the, in the police force in New York, did you... From from the moment you started, were you kind of like, this is me, I love this? Or, or, or was it difficult to adjust thinking, hold on a minute, maybe my career shouldn't head in this direction to start with? <laughs> I did not. I, I went in and, you know, and the, the word academy is misleading. I was like, oh, it'll be like college. And this is kind of level of my naiveness or ignorance comes from because I was so young and I really didn't know. Um, I didn't realize how hard it was. I had no military background. Nobody in my family was in law enforcement. I mean, this was a, a complete blank slate for me. And I remember my first week, I almost quit. I was just thinking to myself, this is, everyone's yelling at me. It's just, it was like the military here in the United States, the police departments are designed in a paramilitary style. They function like the military there. They, the idea is to weed out the weakness of mind and body to keep people who have discipline and self-control, but they essentially, they make you a blank canvas and they build you up. So my first week was a bit rough. Also, the physical component of it. I had been fit, but I'd never trained in, on such a level. And to I didn't know to my, you know, to my ignorance, I did not know the level of training that went into it. It was an eight-month academy. So the New York City Police Department had a very intense academy. But as I, I, I just kept sticking it out. I'm like, just stick it out. Just stick it out. And the more I stuck it out, the better I got, the stronger I got, the faster I got better my grades were, the more I began to bond with everybody and it became me. And I was like, this is, this is me, but it took some time. So I'm, I'm truly glad that I stuck with it because it's very easy to, because you're uncomfortable. It was completely out of my comfort zone. I was like, this isn't my space, but I was looking at big picture. I was like, just stick this out. You're here. See where it takes you. And I truly am glad I did. Training and what you go through in the first eight months. But as you were going through that experience, was there certain parts of policing that 
became apparent to you that were more interesting than others? And if there were, did you try and get yourself into that direction as soon as you could? Or did everything happen almost by accident, you know, the moves along the way? I mean, I, I didn't know much about policing, but what I was passionate about is I believe that you're helping people. And I knew that I was there to, to help the community in some way. And typically in the department, you start as patrol. When you're patrol, you're out on the street, you're answering calls, you're, you know, you're, you're kind of, you're, you're in the community just re responding to incidents. But there's this element of it where when you respond, it's instantaneous. You have to think very quickly and you have to be extremely decisive. And I learned, I learned decisiveness. I learned you make a choice and you stick with it. There's nobody to look to talk to. There's nobody over your shoulder. I mean, it's just you. And if you have a partner, it's you and your partner figuring out what to do in that moment. So it truly just, it gave me, it gave me a strong sense of confidence. It's, it was a, it was a true confidence boost in that I'm out there and that you're capable. And not only that you're capable, that you're you can make a significant impact on people. And then from there, you can move into an investigative space. I did not end up staying in the police department very long. I actually literally went from their training into the U.S. Secret Service special agent training. And I went from one academy to essentially finishing that almost to another. And I began a whole other process working for an agency that, again, it's in that space of service, of law enforcement, but it's a whole other level. To give you an idea, in the police department, there were 1,500 people in my class. And then in the U.S. Secret Service, it was 54. Wow. And you see like the level of thoughtfulness and the intensive background checks and how selective they were in deciding who gets to go to their agency. And even then, even when they bring you on, it's not like you're hired. It's like you can come over, but you have to complete all our training. and then. If you complete it to our satisfaction, then you get offered a position. So you can go through all that training. You can quit your job, do whatever and, and, and fail and get not make it through. And now you've got nothing. Kind of like it's a big step, isn't it? You know, and uh, it must it must help your confidence. I mean, you must feel on top of the world when you get to that space. You don't because they quickly crush you. When you <laughs> I remember I remember when I got the phone call after, you know, it's a very long selection process. It's a very intense selection process. And I remember getting, and every time I went through a part of it, I remember thinking, man, I did not, I didn't make it. I know they, you know, I know that I didn't pass this part of the test. And, and it was difficult um, to go there and to, to, to think like, I don't know if I can do this, but I, I was like, listen, you have the chance there. They're opening the door. Just walk through it. That's all you can do. It's like, I'm not going to be the person who tells me no. Let them say no. Let them say no, no, thank you. And I'm okay with being rejected. I'm okay with failing, so to speak, but I'm not okay with me being the person who pulls me out of this process. And there's an interesting thing. There's something called, you know, there's a self-selection process that happens with positions like this, even positions like where, you know, we're speaking with the astronaut, astronaut where only people who actually think and believe that they deserve to be there put in for these positions. There's so many, the majority of the population don't even put in for something like this because we talk ourselves out of it. We look at all the qualifications and we think, oh, I could never, they won't pick me. If I thought that way, I would have never put in for it. If I thought like they'll never pick me, 
And my mindset was always like, well, why wouldn't, why not? Why not pick me? And we tend to talk ourselves out of extraordinary opportunities because we think and believe, oh, they'll, they won't pick me. And it's like, well, why would they pick that guy or that girl and not pick, not pick me? Why, why not? And so through these training academies, you'll see that usually it's those people who truly think that they can do it. So to go back to your level of confidence, to some degree, you have to have a strong sense of self and belief in yourself to have the nerve to put in for something like this. Just a couple of weeks ago, I, I would think I have a strong sense of self and I would think that I have belief in myself. However, we, I was talking to a lady called Marissa Peer, who does rapid transformational therapy in, over in the States. And I talked to her about something very similar to this. And she said, I was talking to her, I said, you know, and my bad memory seems to trip me up very often. And she said, look at the language you just used. She said, why do you own your bad memory? She said, keep repeating that. Well, you'll always have a bad memory. Change the language, the bad memory that you're going to improve. And I think that, 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 that mindset that we have, are, that you've clearly had along the way of being focused on what you can do as opposed to what you can't do will, will just get you so much further. The, the, a lot of people talk about pessimism and optimism, and then they talk about this other word called realistic or realism. And to me, realism is just pessimism. It's nothing different. And if you have the choice between being optimistic and being pessimistic, th there is literally only one choice that you can have because where does pessimism, le pessimism lead you? And so when, when, I, when I listen to you explaining that, it's like a strong sense of self. How, does that come, is that a nurture or a nature thing, do you think? I don't know. I don't know. I, do, I genuinely don't know. I, I think it's a little bit of both. But it's really interesting what you said about your previous interview and how she talked to you about the language she used. She's right. The language you use to talk to yourself or think about yourself matters. And sometimes we use language, we'll call ourselves, I'm so stupid, I'm an idiot, where do I put that? I'm dumb, oh, I can't believe that, I'm such a loser, I'm lazy. Would you, I mean, I always pose a question, would you ever hang out with somebody who spoke to you that way? Why would you ever wanna, then why would you ever tolerate, you wouldn't tolerate that kind of language from somebody else to talk to you that way, why would you tolerate it from yourself? Because if you are lazy, if you keep saying to yourself, I'm lazy and I'm lazy, then that's what you are. I, you know, I, if you take something as simple as working out, I, I work out every day, please know that I'm not that person who's like, yay, I love it. No, man, I have to like, get myself to get up. But I will never say to myself, don't be lazy, get up. I will say to myself, get up, move, go be strong. The language you use yourself with yourself is the most important thing in the world. And when you have other people use negative language with you, if you know, and sometimes we don't going back to your question, which is nurture, because sometimes we all don't have the proper nurturing in our lives, whether maybe we don't get the best selection of parents, maybe we don't have parents, or maybe our parents don't know any better. And, you know, they raised us in the best way they, they knew how. Through no ill intent, they plant these seeds of language in our, in our mind that we shouldn't do certain things. I came from a very strong Greek background, and culturally, women didn't do this sort of thing. And, you know, so I did have to push up against that. But I also knew intuitively, like, there's a part of you that has to follow your intuition. There's so many voices going on in our head. And 
some of those voices are negative and some of them are positive. And then there's this other part of you that's intuition. That's why we always point to kind of like the heart or the gut. And we're like, I'm following this feeling, this essence of whatever I'm feeling. You can't explain it. You can't articulate it. For me, it was that. I'm just following what I feel. And even though I couldn't articulate it, I couldn't describe it. I just knew or felt rather, this is the place I'm supposed to go to. These are the decisions I, I, I want to make. But I also knew I did not want to make life decisions, and I still b- live by this, based on what somebody else tells me to do, because I will resent them for it. And worse, I will resent myself. And the research shows, the science shows that when we, we, are, o- we are okay, when we, make a, when we make a choice, and maybe in that moment it was the wrong choice, versus not making a choice and living with long-term regret. And what the research study found is that when people were at their end of lives, they found that they regretted more the things that they chose not to do, the things they did not do versus the mistakes that they made. And I I made this vow to myself that I wouldn't fall into that. And, you know, we've I've done it. I think we've all done it where we make a choice. It's like and it doesn't turn out the way it is. And it's like, you know, I listen to that person. It's their fault. And and what we do, it's. It's cheap what we do because we we throw responsibility on other people rather than take ownership over ourselves. And you said something about being optimist versus, you know, being a pessimist. I, I'm neither. I don't think in that way. I live in the truth of things. What is the truth? And that's what I do sometimes if, but I'm not saying I won't veer one way or the other. Sometimes people be like, oh, be optimistic. Oh, be pessimistic. It's like, why do I have to be either? I'm going to live in the reality and the truth of where I am. So optimism to me is, if we go back to academy training, I hope I make it, I hope I make it. Well, how about I just get, or I wish I could make it. How about I get rid of that language? Because that does me no good. And it's like, what do I need to do to make it? Well, I need to run more because I'm not a great runner. I need to strengthen my body more. more. Oh, I need to study more because that legal exam I took, I didn't do as well on. That's what I need to do. So I'm a doer. I think less, I do more. I find the more we think about something and the more we play it in our head, and that's when we go to, oh, which am I? It's like, I'm a mover. I move. I'll put thought into it, but I don't live there. And I think that's where we get in trouble because there's dreamers and then there's doers. It's okay to dream, but you got to move into do. And just do it. And I've always, I've always had the sense, it's like, so what? So what? I go to the academy and I don't make it. So what? But, and even now when, you know, in, in, in this industry, you know, you put in for different jobs, hosting, journalism, TV, how many times I'm told no. And it's like, that's fine. And even when I hear no, I hear not yet. I'm like, all right, I didn't get this, but it's not my time yet. What do I need to do to change that? So I feel like I have this course that this inner course is this thing that I follow through in life. And it's my course. And I just don't allow the external environment to sway sway me one way or another. But I'm also not going to sit and debate, am I an optimist? Am I a pessimist? Because optimism is like, I don't want to live in la-la land because that gets you nowhere because you have to live in the truth of things to to, to be able to manage things. You don't want to be negative because that's when you don't put in for a position like the U.S. Secret Service because you've already talked yourself out of it. So I don't think I like either of those worlds. Okay. Let's 
think about how you think in in life threatening situations maybe we can just talk about 9-11 for a second here you were involved in the atrocities that happened there and I'm sure that your life was threatened in that environment did were you able to still have that type of mindset in that type of situation you know and i'm sure there's been other situations that you've been in that have been that most most average people like me couldn't possibly even imagine but do you still think the same way or are you are you in a different place in your head when you're dealing with that do you think i might die this could end holy macaroni you know things could go horribly wrong right now or do you still have that i'm going to get through it mindset With 9-11, with September 11th, it was such a simple thing. Again, it, go, it went back to the essence of who I was. People are dying. What am I going to do to help? It didn't even cross my mind for a moment to leave. And I, I'll give this to my parents, especially my father. I grew up in a home where I was not to fear death. Death is, as we all know, inevitable. It comes for every single one of us. We're all going to get there. So you can't escape that. I was taught that it is part of life and it is a, however you look at it, it's a transition into something else. So if I know already that death is inevitable, that I'm going to die. And in that moment, I'm thinking people, my brothers and sisters, because that's how I see humanity. I always have. And I feel like when you go into this place of service, at least for me, it's my, it's my brothers and sisters out there who need my help as human beings. I don't, you know, I, that's how I feel about mankind. That's why I went into it. But I can't, if I'm going to go, I mean, my mindset was like, I'm going to go one day. So if I'm going to go and it means saving the lives of other people, that's a pretty good way to go. I'm okay to die like that. I don't mind. That's just the true inner part of myself. Like, and I felt okay because I'll tell you this, Spencer, I was not okay with leaving because it would be over. And then I would have to live with the choice of leaving. And just based on who I am and how I'm built, I wouldn't be okay with that. I think that I would struggle with that greatly to know that I turned around and left while other people needed help. And that's what I chose. And we, you don't, I never, you said like, you know, you can't imagine. Of course, nobody can imagine. I couldn't imagine. But I think it's when you're in that moment, it's who you, there's a general, his name is General, um, this general who did this great uh, speech. Uh, he gave a commencement speech here in the United States. Uh, he was a, a Navy SEAL and he said something when he gave his commencement speech. It's who you are in your darkest moments that truly defines you. And it is in your darkest moments when you must be your best, when you must be at your most absolute calm. And I think we live in a society that says, oh, when everything's chaotic and you're struggling in this, it's okay to fall apart. It's okay to be an emotional mess. It's okay to not to know what to do. Well, how about that you must be the best person you could potentially be? Because at that moment, because you are reacting to things, you're not thinking through things, try to find your best. And I, that is the mindset that I've tried. I'm not saying I'm successful. I by no means do I put myself at all on the pedestal. We are, uh, we are. I, I do. I will be working on myself to the day I I die. 
Um, but that is who I strive to be, to be my best during my darkest moments. I owe that to myself. Do you, do you think that that politics in the United States is really helping the brand America right now to the rest of the world? I, I do think the U.S. is in a difficult place because of the diversity and the the divisiveness. Not the diversity, but the divisiveness is what I was trying to say. And I do feel like, look, to be president, it's it's no small feat. You know, I've been around other presidents and I've not been, to be fair, I've never, I was not around during the protection of the current president. So I, I cannot speak from a place of knowledge there. But in my experience, they have each, it's, people ask me, let me rewind for a minute. People ask me, what's the one thing you learned from doing protection? I'll tell you it's resilience. I've never seen people take such a, a beating, your reputation, humiliation, names being called, and yet you still have to wake up and you still got to go run the country. And you still, you may have to get up and, and give a speech. You may drive by on your way to an event and see people holding up signs about you and hateful things about you. And I want to know how many people could actually endure that. We can't endure somebody writing something negative about us on a, on a post on Instagram. Yeah, but you have to be a person of this caliber to withstand that to run. I, I do hope that whatever the election yields, that people, I think we have to come to a place where we can learn to accept each other and accept each other's opinions, whatever they are, and that there are no absolute true, you know, rights or wrongs. That because it's like we are shaped by the way we were raised, by the way our environment is by our DNA, by our education or lack thereof, by our traumas, by our experiences, by our hardships. So we each have a unique way of seeing the world. And what I think what's happening is we have a lack of perspective or a lack of empathy to see the world as somebody else sees it. And so it's like, oh, no, no, I'm absolutely right. No, you're absolutely wrong. And I think that's where we run into trouble. And it's so interesting, Spencer, that you asked me this. Last night I watched this uh, documentary on Netflix called The Social Dilemma. And it wow. blew my mind. And it's exactly what you, you just asked me, like, how did we get there? And I sat there watching this documentary thinking, oh my gosh, this, this absolutely makes so much sense. So I feel like the question you're asking me is so much bigger than politics, it just runs so deep on how social media and everybody's ability to have a voice and to push their ideas onto other and the way entities can manipulate these these platforms to kind of put us against each other. So I don't know. I, I want to know what you think, actually, because I realize you've seen it as well, it sounds like. Real, really important points that I took from that. And I think that one thing that really resonated with me was when the guy taught, the guy that created likes, why he created likes, coming from such a really kind of like, you can just imagine them, can't you? Sitting there programming together going, why don't we do this? Why don't we do a thumbs up if people like that stuff? That's positive. People can be encouraging of others. But without thinking about the consequences of what likes would be if you didn't get likes. You know, they weren't going to do dislikes, but they would do likes. But not being liked is just the same as a dislike. And so that was really fascinating for me. And, and also, 
But at the beginning of this journey for so many of them, not realizing what potentially could happen. And I, I think that happens in, in, I think, many industries or many walks of life. People don't look so far ahead. But there generally tends to be, you know, uh, academics or, or, or some part of some community that sit there and say, watch out, because if you do that, the consequences may be X, Y or Z. And I don't think a lot of that was done. And we sit now with social media and we can, with artificial intelligence, control what content people receive. And we know that people are spending hours and hours and hours consuming content every day. With money, we can control what content people receive. And being in charge of that network, whether it be Twitter or Facebook or whatever, um, the owners of those businesses without regulation can control a narrative that really, you know, has replaced television and, and been 10 times more powerful. Um, I, I have two daughters, they're 18 and 21. They're both at university at the moment. And I think every parent that sat and watched that um, sat and thought about their kids, you know, and, and, and I have one of my eldest daughter. Um, it's tough. She's strong. She doesn't tolerate anything. She knows exactly what she wants. She knows exactly where she's going and she's fierce. Yet my youngest is completely opposite. And, and has been bullied as a kid at school and as, as you know has been really hurt and affected by that bullying and and then on social media by TikTok when it started and other kinds of stuff because the bullying when I was a kid ended when I left school you know I'd go home in the safety of the home my my youngest didn't get that all the way through she had a mobile phone a few years back and you know bear in mind Facebook came out in 2004 she was born in 2001 so it's been all of her life and so then to go home of an evening and then to pick up her phone and Snapchat and nasty messages or exclusion or inclusion in certain things, it's, um, it's had a profound effect on her life, genuinely has a profound effect on her life. And so I worry about that a lot. And I know a lot of parents do. And if you listen to what Gary Vaynerchuk says, he says, look, it's evolution. You know, it was everyone was complaining about the TV before the TV came along. Everyone was complaining about the poison on the radio before the radio came along and not overexposing your kids to these types of things. So you have to accept that evolution. But it doesn't make it any nicer because when you love someone, as, as every parent loves their kids and they could be hurt or upset or feeling pain, the first thing you want to do is take that pain away from them. So I, you know, the other side of it is I use social media for all of my business. My podcast is promoted on social media. My clients come to me because they consume my social media content. Um, I, um, I outreach for people like you after consuming you on social media. So, so it, it plays a very important role in everything that I do. And I'm, I'm one voice. And I think that if there was a way of creating a, a more reasonable environment where there were, there were rules that were non-negotiable, okay? And those rules really were against the kind of behavior people can have, okay? The, the way people can, can talk to each other. I'm not saying you can't have your opinions and your beliefs because everybody should feel free to be able to stand on the, on, on the soapbox and, and share what they believe about or interpret about the world. But if there was just a way that social media really encouraged kindness 
before maliciousness. Social media encourage positivity before anything else. And almost, you know, you got two ticks for positivity and zero ticks for negativity. I don't know, something that could just help us say, you know what, if I'm going to use a platform like this, I'm going to try and do something good rather than something bad. I think that would be a step in the right direction. But then the argument is, as you watched on the movie on Netflix, or the documentary, sorry, has it, is it too late? You know, is it, is it too late? Are we not able to catch it? You know, like Ron, who was the astronaut, he's like the ozone layer. Atmosphere is this thin. He said, and we are, we are doing that damage. We are causing that problem. And the atmosphere and that, that layer there is what keeps everything stuck to the earth. It keeps the, the sun in the sky and everything else. He said, if that's gone, we're in trouble. We're doing something consciously to damage it every single day, whether that's rainforest being chopped down in, in the Amazon, okay, or, or, or greenhouse gases coming from the amount of production that comes from factories. We are, we're consciously doing that every day. Can we stop it? It's funny how, for me, COVID was a great example about something coming your way that actually could just stop us for a minute, just to take a breath and look at where we were, what we were doing, the impact we were having, and and maybe just take a segment of the population to go, oh, this isn't so good, is it? But will it change those trees being chopped down? Will it change the fish being pulled out of the sea? And will it change enough kids being abused through social media channels. I just don't know. I hope and I pray. I'm 50 years old. I hope and I pray in my lifetime that's possible, but I don't know. What do you think? You know what, Spencer, Spencer, you say this, like it's also individual accountability. And I think we move into a space where we don't take accountability for ourselves. So if this is my phone, right? For example, if we go back to the phone, I choose how I consume it. So I also have to have responsibilities to myself to understand like and through understanding through, through documentaries like this through hearing what's going on through people educating us getting through to us it's like i i am responsible for my actions no one forces me to do something no one forces me to to use my social media and stay on it all day and nobody forces me to pollute the environment i can monitor those things i can make a difference and i think should there be regulations and everything yes because sadly, as we see, like human beings, individuals don't self-regulate well. It's always that, you know, there's money, there's business, there's ego. There's all these things that drive us. And we think, oh, I'm doing the right thing. And we think there's no law. There's nothing illegal about this. So I should do it. And I remember once when I uh, was talking with this one lawyer who dealt, he was a prosecutor and he was telling me about the law. And he said, you know, what's sad. He said, people say they use the law as a barometer of how they live. What? What I'm doing isn't illegal. It's the law doesn't say I can't do that. And he's like, if you live your life and you use the law as a level to keep you ethical, he's like, that's the lowest level of morality. The law is the lowest level because when you hit here, this means the law was created. And I, I teach criminal justice as an adjunct professor. Something is defined as a crime when it causes harm to another human being. In a significant way. And that's why a law is created to make that act illegal. So imagine how much harm has to happen for something to be made illegal, for a law to exist. And so we choose to live at this, this fundamental, the, the lowest level of standard that we place ourselves rather than doing what's morally or ethically uh, a, a, a proper, being morally or sound, ethically sound. We use the law as a barometer of who should, we should be. And that is the, the worst way we. we 
could live as individuals. We should not be waiting for something to become law for us to say, oh, it's wrong. But going back to my interviewing days and when I would interview people who committed uh, significant, you know, significant acts of crime, sometimes horrible, and you sit across from someone. And I know on TV, when you watch drama shows, the person who committed the crime looks like a person who committed the crime. In real life, people who committed crimes were sometimes people you'd never think would commit a crime. And, you know, I, there's a saying, and this one senior polygraph examiner would say this to me, and he'd say, anybody is capable of anything at any given moment in time if given the opportunity and with the right weakness. I, I, I'm going to go back to Netflix because I watched another documentary recently about that guy in Denver that killed his wife and his kids and he put the kids in the oil tank. Um, um, and, and again, you would never in a million years, based upon all of the backstory, think somebody would do something like that. And, and, and so that, that feeds into exactly what you just said. Anybody would do anything at a, a certain given time. Let's talk about polygraphs because I'm quite interested in this and I don't know much about it. I've only seen it in the movies and, uh, and I want to know, I want to know what's real about it and what isn't. How, how, how correct are they? How accurate are they? They're as accurate as the person giving it to you. So the interesting thing is everybody thought the, the machine was a polygraph. I was, I'm the polygraph. I was a polygraph. What this machine does, when, and right now it's a software system. It's literally, it's a laptop computer with software. And it runs, it checks your involuntary system, meaning your blood pressure, blood flow, breathing, heart rate, how much you sweat, they call it the electro, electrodermal activity. These are things you can't uh, consciously control. This is stuff your body controls. You can't tell yourself, okay, sweat more. When your body feels a sense of threat, when you feel a sense of threat, you start sweating more. Your hands get clammy or so you can grip onto things or even be more slippery for somebody to, to hold on to you. I practice Brazilian jiu-jitsu and when someone's super sweaty, I can't I can't grab them. My hands slide. And so all these things that our body does, it's, 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 it's so intelligent. It's designed to protect us from threat. Now, the idea is, though, when somebody is lying, the body and the mind understand it also to be a threat. So I fear the threat of getting caught in a lie. I might go to jail. I might go to prison. I might get in trouble. But even something as simple as you fear being stopped by a police officer, right? Maybe when you're driving, if you're driving fast, you get pulled over, you think, okay, what are the consequences of what could happen to me? I might lose my license to drive. I might pay a penalty. My insurance might go up. There are other consequences. So anytime we feel threatened, our body responds. You don't have to think about it. Your body does it for you. And if you think about that speeding scenario, for you speeding is a scenario, you're driving on the highway, you're going super fast. You see the law enforcement officer in the corner and you do what? What do you do, Spencer, as soon as you see that person? I panic. I straight away. I panic. I straight away. You panic. You put your foot on the brake. You slow down and you're gripping the steering wheel. And all of a sudden you feel that emotional change in your body. You didn't tell your body to do it. Your body just did it for you because it's preparing you. So now if your your radio was on, you turn off the music because you want to pay attention because you're distracted by too much. You're focused. You're looking in a rearview mirror. You're gripping the steering wheel. You're ready. All you did was drive by a law enforcement person in the corner, police officer in the corner. And you have this complete change in response. So the same thing happens when people lie. Now, the polygraph itself measures that change. So when you're asking somebody questions, 
you are measuring that change. Now you'll say to me, well, what if they're nervous? If you're nervous, you're nervous throughout my whole exam. You're nervous for every single question and your nervousness becomes that new baseline. Now, the other thing, Spencer, that you don't see on TV is before you actually do a polygraph, before you actually, excuse me, hook them up to the, the instrument, you've been talking to that person for at least an hour, hour and a half, two hours. You're having a conversation with them. Real interrogators have conversations. A good interrogation, you know how you know a good interrogation is the person has no idea they're even being interviewed. We have a really backward uh, thought process in how interrogations are done. We think through force or even through torture. And if even if you just put that human element of like, is it moral or immoral, put that aside for the moment. In general, you, get, you don't get good information because you may get the truth here and there, but I also may say anything I need to say to you to get you to stop. And that's where now we've wasted resources and money on chasing false leads, on getting bad information. So that's why forcing people to do stuff like that, that never works. You want to get people to comply. So going back to polygraph, what you're measuring is the change in the person's body. Now, having said that, the person giving it has to, it's a skill set and the science. So I have to be very mindful and careful of how I'm giving it. So can I, can I affect somebody in such a way to cause them to fail it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Or can I affect somebody in such a way to cause them to to pass? Possibly. So what you have to do is you have to be extremely ethical. You have to be extremely, you have to be a seeker of the truth because the other issue that happens with interviews and interrogations when you're talking to this community of uh, enforcers is if I come in there thinking, Spencer did this. I know Spencer did this. I need to get out of him. And I'm thinking you're the guy who committed whatever act. And even if you're arguing with me or even if you're giving me points as to why it could not have been it been you, I am so biased at this point that it doesn't matter what you say, you, you already did it. So all I'm focused on is getting a confession from you. And you can absolutely get people to give false confessions. There's a variety of reasons. And if we look at how they happen and you look at the data, what causes someone to give a false confession? Because you as an individual be like, I would never give one, possibly. But when you're in that moment and you're in this weakened state, you don't know how you're going to respond. So one, age is a factor. We see that the younger somebody is, the more easily they're influenced. Uh, we see mental health being a factor. So maybe that person has some type of mental or emotional health issue, or in that moment, they're just extremely weak and vulnerable. The other thing is, is when you look at law enforcement or you look at police, the idea is they are there to help us. Well, I should trust this person. And so because we want to trust them, we will say whatever we want them to say. And then it's also like ability. We want them to like us and believe in us. So we may say whatever they want us to say. So there's so many different factors in which it happens. And we have seen people, at least here in the United States, be exonerated. They gave a false com- confession. Yes, I did this. Then it's found later. They actually did not do it. How on earth did they give a false confession? Again, it goes back to the interviewer. So I personally, when it comes to this, uh, I don't think everybody should be doing interviews. I think there should be a system set up within the world, within law enforcement, where you have to have a level of skill set. You wouldn't want any, just anybody going to, you know, look at a bomb and take it apart. They go through special training, through special, uh, special schooling. They practice because you need, you need that certain skill set. Interviewing people in interrogations and polygraphs is the same thing. 
We need to educate our law enforcement community more, give them the proper tools they need. I even have, I'll give the U.S. Secret Service credit for this. After they trained me in the art and science of, of lie detection, they sent me to get my master's degree in forensic psychology because the idea is you need to understand the human mind, people. And we haven't advanced in the sciences. You know, so we need to be better when we talk to people. So going back to your original question, it depends who is giving that polygraph. It depends on who is doing the interview. If they have the training and the skill set, that tool is remarkable because I will tell you there are times with, with all my reading body language and verbal language and detecting deception, I've been through every school and training you could think of. There are moments in my life where I, where I would sit across from someone and I'm like, I have no idea. I had no clue. Are they telling me the truth or not? You'll get those people where you're kind of, they're outliers. And so the polygraph in and of itself was great because it would show me, I just asked this person a series of questions, but there's one question they seem to be responding to. Why is that? Now, it doesn't mean that they've lied to me. It can be, it can mean that that person's just concerned about it. So I remember once I had an an applicant because I used to also do applicants. Anybody who wanted to work in the U.S. Secret Service, There's a very intensive background check and you would have to take a polygraph. So when I asked this applicant, you know, about serious crime, have you been involved in serious crime? And they responded, I remember thinking with this, something about this question, they don't like. Now, automatically you would make an assumption, oh, they must have committed a crime. That's why they're responding. When in fact, there was a family member of theirs who had, who had committed crimes and had actually been to prison and jail, or it was prison or jail. I don't remember. And that's why he was responding to that question. So in that way, the polygraph is a great tool. Okay. Do you find yourself try, uh, naturally, subconsciously, without thinking about it, assessing people all the time, it, 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 no matter what happens? And even right now, sat here, me and you, do you find yourself subconsciously falling into that characteristic and behavior pattern? It's, it's a habit. It's like driving. Remember the first time you drove, you probably got behind the wheel. You're thinking, oh, my God, I have to what? Look in the rearview mirror and this. And, you know, you're driving stick shift and you're thinking, how when do I go into first gear and second gear? You're so overwhelmed. But then you do it over and over and over again. Now you drive and you're like, I don't even know how I got there. It's the same thing. When you do something over and over and over again. So when I'm looking at people and after doing hundreds of if not thousands of hours of interviewing, it just becomes a habit. We, you become in tune to people. But the other thing that's great about it, you also become more empathic of people because it's not just what I would tell people, you know, and I wrote this in my book because I wrote a whole section on reading people because we all want to read people better. We all want to read people better because we don't want to be betrayed or hurt. It happens. We want to try to minimize that exposure in our lives. And we also want to be a better assessor of human behavior, it makes us better at our jobs, whether we're in sales, whether we're interviewing someone, right? We, Whatever it is we're doing or whether we want to have better relations with our boss or coworkers, those are, those, these are indispensable skills. We should all have them. But, you know, with the book, I was like, how can I take all my training, everything that I learned and let people apply it to their day-to-day lives? Because I took that same skill set and I applied it to everything related to my uh, day-to-day life. And so you can get a good read on people, which makes you a better communicator, but it's not in a negative way. It also makes you more empathic. I also learned through the art of interviewing that the interview has nothing to do with me. That ego is the greatest sabotager of all. 
So when I walk into an interview room and I make it about me or the person I'm talking to gets nasty or they're quiet or maybe they're disrespectful at some point or maybe maybe they say something. It's not about me at the end of the day. It's also not about me going in and be like, shame on you. You did this and you did that. We insert ourselves into other people's lives. We project ourselves onto others. And that's why we become bad at communicating with people. We will make our issues their issues rather than saying, I'm a blank slate. I have nothing to do with this. I'm going to speak to this person in a way that will resonate with them, that will allow them to feel understood. And I will tell you that is how I got my confessions. Because if I talked to someone, I told them what a piece of garbage I thought they were, I got nothing. I got garbage from them. But when I could sit with them and I could empathize, and it doesn't mean I agree. It doesn't mean I agree with you when you committed this crime, but I can empathize and try to see and understand why you did what you did. Because I will tell you, going back to what I was saying earlier, that anybody's capable of anything at any given moment in time, given the right circumstances and you know, given their, any type of weakness of mindset, that you can justify things to yourself. And we've all been there where we've done something to cause some kind of harm to someone and we have sold it to ourselves. I am right to do this because this person did this to me. Or I am right to do this because the world owes me this. You can sell anything to yourself. So that's why, especially when we do news, I never liked it. When I would hear people or commentators go on and say, that person's crazy, that person's this. What does that mean? When you define people as crazy or you you label them as that, you don't really understand the human mindset. It's just a simplistic way to say why somebody does something. But then when you look at the history of the person, nature, nurture, mental health issues, what happened to them, all these different things. When we really look at people as an individual and try to understand that individual and try to create some type of empathetic, empathetic mindset, then we can figure out how to minimize this stuff. But when you just label somebody as crazy or evil, good luck with that. That's why you have this continual problem of people doing these things because we lack the fundamental. We say, oh, that's them. And we always love it, right? As long as I'm better than that person, I'm good. I call that like, I have a term for that. My husband and I have a term for it. It's like you take from somebody else's bucket to put into your bucket so you, that you feel better about yourself. I mean, okay, so before I want, and I'm conscious of time and I want to talk to you about your book in a bit of detail. Um, first of all, before we go into that, how am I doing so far? <laughs> oh, you're doing great. Oh, you're doing great. This is amazing. You know what, I love it. You ask really thoughtful questions. Whereas, you know, and I, and I love, you know, speaking and, and doing interviews. Um, but you really put thoughtfulness, even I'll tell you this, even going back to the beginning of our interview, you spent a great deal of time speaking to, to me. And just so you know, by um, standards of interviewing, that's actually rapport building. That's excellent rapport building, just so you know. So you um, you connect with people in such a way and that they feel comfortable with you and they can talk with you. And that's uh, an element of, you know, I talk about in the book, but even when we would interview people, how do we get people to be more of themselves and drop those walls is building great rapport with people and connecting with them. Um, let's talk about the book. But before we talk about the book, I want to tell you, I wrote a book and I say this quite a lot on my podcast. It's not fun writing a book. It's fun thinking about writing a book for me anyway. And I was like, yeah. And then writing a book became a real a labor of love more than anything else. So first of all, where did you get the idea to start writing a book from? How did you go about writing it and, and why? I am, with I am with you. Writing a book was one of the hardest things I've ever had to do. And 
I had been approached before to do a book, but everybody wanted books about the people I protected. Tell me stories about this person. Tell me stories about that person. And, you know, what was Michelle Obama really like? And I was kind of like, I'm not writing that book. You know, I'm not talking about the lives of the people that I protected. I just was like, that's not my book. If you want to know about Mrs. Obama, I think she wrote a book. Please go read her book. You know, don't don't come to me for that. Um, so I just, I wanted to write a book that would help people. And what I found is after I left the service, actually, it even started while I was still in there. I would have people in my circle reach out to me. Hey, I have this problem. Can you give me advice? And initially it started with protection. I'm sorry about that. I don't know how to turn it off. Um, <laughs> I'm so sorry. I'm like the technical person. That's where my skill set stops. Technology. <laughs> I need to work on. But I would have people constantly hit me up with issues. I have this issue. Safety. And then it kind of it went from safety to protection to how do I talk to this person? How do I deal with confrontation? How do I deal with conflict? And it just began to spill. And how do I talk to my kids? And I was getting bombarded and I still get bombarded with this stuff. And I was like, there is a need. People are struggling. There's a need for some kind of guidance. And through all my training and through my exposure to other strong individuals, I by proxy became stronger and more confident and braver. And look, even going back to 9-11, I wasn't alone on 9-11. I was with my fellow agents. So their bravery, their sense of bravery and selflessness, that rubbed off on me. It was If I was around other fear-based people, I don't know. I would like to think I still would have stayed, but I can't say that for sure. I don't know if they could have influenced me to say, no, we need to leave. And so I, I realized all these different things help shape me into a very different person from who I was to who I was becoming. And I wanted to put these in a book. And I found um, a literary agent. His name is uh, Doug Abrams. Idea Architects is, is the literary agency. And his, his thing was, we want to make world uh, books, excuse me, want to write books that make the world a better, more wise and just place. And I was like, that's my guy. I'm going to do a book. It's with him. And so I wanted the book to have a little bit of narrative, but the book was not meant to be a memoir. It's not about me. It's not about my life. Although I use myself as a, as a storytelling part to keep people connected and to see my transformation. But I was like, I was so privileged, Spencer. I was lucky to go through all these academies, to go through these hardships, to be exposed, to be in the White House, to be around presidents and foreign heads of state. I mean, Buckingham Palace. I've got to go to Buckingham Palace and be around these other extraordinary people and to watch how these people function and think, to do my interviews, to learn the art of deception and the art of reading people and communicating better with people. And I was like, I got to put this down in print. This is a life manual. How can I take everything I learn and synthesize it in such a way where every anybody, anybody can use it in their day-to-day -day lives? And it was not easy. Um, I had to sit down and, and think about how do I want to write? What do I want to write? want to write. And then also at the same time, make sure I'm not giving away any national security secrets. And I had to go to the U.S. Secret Service with my book and say, this is my book. This is what I, I wrote. And I even told them in advance, I'm like, I'm writing this. I want you all on board. I want to make sure I'm not giving away anything that is detrimental to the agency. And I handed it over and they, to their credit, they did a full assessment. They went through the book. They said, hey, this is okay. Would you change this? This is a bit of an issue. And they worked with me and I'm, I'm grateful for that. And that's the type of book we put out there. And to my knowledge, because I know other U.S. Secret Service or former agents have written books like this, I think it's the only one of its kind. And I broke it down 
It was so hard because I broke it down into three parts. First part is protection, you know, and strength, like resilience, but just not physical resilience, not physical protection, but mental protection. It's so important going back to what we were just talking about with the phones. You have to, you have a responsibility to yourself to, to mental, to have mental resilience. How do you do that? How do you buffer yourself from the world? And then, but then if something does penetrate you, how do you respond to that? So many people lack the skills to mental resilience. They, they don't, they know they need to have it, but they're like, well, how do I do that? So I break that down. Literally it took from training and the way they, they broke us down and made us stronger individuals. And I'm kind of morphed that for people's everyday life. Second part is all about reading people, body language, verbal language. When you hear things like sometimes, so before you were asking me, when you assess me or do you assess people? And there are certain words or phrases that I will hear. You didn't give any, so you're good. Um, that are that are red flags. I'll hear somebody say something like, I don't like that. That's a red flag. Now it's internal. And so I go into the whole process, the body language stuff you need to look at, verbal skills, and then paralinguistics, which is how we deliver our information and how other people deliver information to us and how that can help us be better assessors of people. And so I took all of that and then I flipped it around because you also have to be aware of what you are telling the world. Because we're often like, oh, I don't understand. Why don't people get me? I'm this, I'm that. They got it wrong. It's like, did you ever stop to think that maybe it's how you present yourself to the world and what you are doing, what people see when they see you or hear you speak or the words you choose to say? And the third part is all influence. So this is where it gets really deep and really in the psychology of things influencing people's minds. How do I get you to yes? How do I get people to kind of go along with me? World's hard. It's plenty of obstacles there before us. So how do we navigate other people in such a way to make them more likely to be agreeable and to say yes and to avoid conflict? And so I talk about all the strategies and these strategies are used by the premier negotiators in the world. Fascinating about what you do and how and how you talk and 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 i'll put chris foss in there as well because chris foss will be on the show soon as well but if you read his book if you listen to how you speak and the the backgrounds you both come from yes he was an fbi hostage negotiator your story is a different one but again uh, it's not a business related industry that you're in It's, it's something completely different however so many of the tactics, the strategies, the approaches are all so interlinked to business. And whether that's selling a company, selling a product or a service, whether that's employing somebody, whether that's negotiating for a pay rise, whether that's dealing with a hostile member of staff in your office, whether that's trying to influence your team and get them to get on board with you and come on the journey, whether that's you know, being clear and creating clarity, whether that's understanding people around the boardroom table and how they behave by their nonverbal communication or, or, or the, the, the things that they say, which we generally don't pick up on. All of these things apply to nearly everybody in some part of their, their day-to-day business lives. Yes. And, yes. and I wrote that when I wrote the book, I used like, you know, business too, as a, not just personal relationships, but business relationships. How do you sell something? How do you, something as simple as, as priming? How do you prime someone? When we go into a business meeting, sometimes we don't stop to think about what's the first sentence I'm going to say, how am I going to start this? Because the first sentence, it's a priming sentence. You can prime people to either set off 
a great meeting or a weak meeting. That first sentence you use, you should script it out. Best negotiators I knew, they wrote their stuff out. The first sentence, because my first sentence is going to lead to a second sentence, which is going to lead to a third sentence, which is going to lead to a fourth sentence. And the way it goes, it's like a domino effect. If my first one's strong, my second one will follow. If my first one's weak, then the whole thing follows and is weak. And that's what you need to kind of look at. You're laughing. Why are you smiling? What are you going to show me? You are talking, first of all, my language. Secondly, everything you're saying is exactly what I do. It says it in this book, my book that I wrote, that everything you just said, you need to do this, 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 and this. And I'm like, yeah, you do. You're right. <laughs> and I think what the remarkable thing is with books like yours, like mine, like Voss's book, I think they're great books to read and listen, you know, or listen to because I look at it, it's like, think of everything as a buffet. And you take from each book, from each author, always make sure your information is credible because some of these books are very gimmicky. Like do these top three things, you'll have people eating out of your hands. None of that stuff is true. Like it's work. People are work. It's thoughtfulness. It's creating positive habits so that you can prime things to go into direction. It's, it's effort. It's a skill. Anything worth doing is there's a thoughtfulness there. Anything worth doing, there's a thoughtfulness there. Anything worth doing, you, is it, there's work. So I remember when I went through all the different training and I trained with so many different people, I looked at it as a buffet. This person's going to teach me something. This person's going to teach me something. Now, it's, it may not all work for me, but I'm going to take a little bit of this and a little bit of that and a little bit of that. And whatever works for me is what I'm going to employ. So going back to the U.S. Secret Service, there's about 30 polygraph examiners out of 5,000. There was only 30 of us. And we all had our own unique sense of style. And so what one of my colleagues did, I may not do in the room because it may have worked with him for him because he was a big guy and he was strong and he looked intimidating. And so he would use a certain tactic, which on me would be inauthentic and phony. Um, but then I would use something that he could never use in the room. And so what I think is so important is that we should try to find our own individual style. And so when you read books like yours and like mine, like Voss's, you take a little bit and you make it your own style. And that's what makes it authentic. That's how you spot the phonies. But if you just take a, a, a technique and you try to execute it and you're, look, you're looking to manipulate people and there is, you are disingenuous with that, people see through it. I, I've, I've interviewed over 100 and I don't know, whatever it is, 120 people um, and 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 very famous to not famous at all, very successful to not successful at all from all different walks of life. I have never interviewed somebody that I feel I have such alignment with as you, ever. Everything you say, as you say it, all I keep saying is exactly, in my mind, exactly, exactly. I couldn't concur with you more. It's, it's fantastic talking to you. It's like... You're on my page. It's like, it's just so gen genuinely, just genuinely awesome. Because as I've listened to this, and whilst we've both lived very different lives, the, 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 the strategies, the techniques, the, the approaches, the mindset, um, and even when we had the whole pessimism and optimism thing, I understand your point of view. I see it a little bit different, but not so different. And 
it's so aligned. It, I could sit and talk to you for hours, literally hours and hours and hours, because no matter what I brought up, no matter what question I asked, I, I can tell you you're going to answer it the way that I think you're going to answer it. And that's the way I would answer it. It's just a, it's a blessing. It really is. You're, you're mega. I think you're awesome. Oh, thank you, Spencer. That means so much. I appreciate that. You know, you try to put as much thoughtfulness as you can. And I think that that's where we lack a little bit in society, thoughtfulness. And it's, it's always me, 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 I, I, I. And what I found is if I can make a conversation, whatever that conversation is, or business meeting, if I can make it about the other person, then I'm more in tune and connected with them. And then that opens up a whole new world where we were so focused on ourselves. And then by proxy, it ends up helping you, you know, it, it, when it comes around. But it's, the, the mind is such a powerful thing. And, you know, you look at the science and the research and, and how that's morphed over the years and how if you understand the human mindset, psychology, the ego, and even just that, that inner part of people, like what they're thinking, what their values are, what their motives are, you can connect with them in such a way. You don't have to agree. And I think, one of the big hindrances I see with people is how can I convince this person to see it my way? And I'm just kind of like, well, why do you have to? Life would, life would be pretty shit if we just agreed on the same things all the time anyway. <laughs> Tell me, um, what's the name of the book? The book, is called- the book is called Becoming Bulletproof. And I called it Becoming Bulletproof because I feel like we're constantly becoming something. We're never stopping, you know, myself included. I'm always evolving. I'm trying to evolve. And then Bulletproof, I chose that title because I wore a Bulletproof vest every day on my job. And I wanted to express that you're never fully fearless because the book is about living fearlessly. And there was some thought to make it a book. It's called, call it fearless and make it about not having fear. And I was like, well, that's not true. That's a lie. I did, I don't believe in being fearless. Fear is good. Fear, fear keeps you safe. It keeps you secure. It keeps you away from bad people and things. Um, and then it's also inevitable because you're going to feel it from time to time in your life. And so if I'm selling to somebody, hey, you need to be fearless and if after you read my book, you're not, you're going to think like something's wrong with me. And I was just like, you know, so I called it bulletproof because it reminded me of the vest. Like I knew when I put my vest on, it protected me, it shielded me, but I wasn't wholly safe. My head was exposed, my arms were exposed, my legs were exposed. So it's like, I'm going to give you all the tools I, I, I know to shield you, to create your own bulletproof vest. But at the same time, I'm going to make you okay with being vulnerable. And it's when we're not okay with being vulnerable that where we have issues because we think we're supposed to be perfect. We're supposed to be fearless. We're supposed to hit all these things. And then when we don't, we loathe ourselves. We hate ourselves. We don't perform well. Um, it, we suffer. And so it's like, no, you need to be okay with being vulnerable and understand that you're not completely shielded from the world. We can, there's, there's certain things you can do to avoid risk and minimize risk, whether it's in situations or through people. But at the same time, it's you have to be okay with having people take shots at you to some degree in life. We've 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 made it where if somebody does something to you, it's horrific. It's like, no, it's just life. People are gonna get you, but you also can't completely fall apart when it happens. You gotta you, you gotta think strategically and tactically. And, and that's really what the book is about. 
Yeah, looking at you through this interview of my corner eye here, my producer just keeps nodding her head in agreement with you, Alicia. She's like, yep, 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 yeah, <laughs> all the way through, yep, yep. So it's really good. Oh, that's good. Okay, so we can get it on Amazon. We can obviously buy it in any book. Is it in bookstores as well? Everywhere, yeah. Everywhere books are sold. Is there an audio book? Uh, yes, it is. Uh, yes, it is. And I did my own audio book as well. I totally, I don't know. Well, did you did you do one for yours? No, because, you know, you you done once. You know how long it takes. It took about, it took about a week. Exactly. <laughs> I love, you know, I loved it. I would tr- strongly encourage you, like people love, I think people love being told stories sometimes. And ironically, my audiobook is through the roof. Like people love hearing you talk to them. And so I think people would love to, I think, hear you tell tell them your story through your voice. You're right. You know, whenever I whenever I listen to an audiobook and I listen to many, um, I want I want the author to be literally telling the story. I don't want it to be somebody else. Um, there's a couple of exceptions. Vin- Victor Frankl in Man's Search for Meaning. Okay, he's dead, so that being redone. Um, but if it's Gary V, I want Gary V's voice. I want Tony Robbins roaring down the, you know, the, the, the speakers at me going, you can do this, you know, and, <laughs> and stuff like that. So, yeah, th- so it's, it's really, really good that you did that. Um, I tried to download the book today, but we can't download it in the Middle East on um, on audio. Um, what's it called? Audible that we have over here. Um, and so, yeah, it won't allow us to download it, but I'm, I'm going to be traveling to the UK in a while and I'll just change the location and be able to get it from uh, from the Audible once I hit the UK. So I'm really looking forward to listening to it. Evie, I, I can't thank you enough for sparing, first of all, this amount of time and secondly, sharing just a fraction because I think there's so much more for you to share of your life and your experience and, and really helping to really uh, inspire everybody and give us stuff that's just so valuable and just so full of just really good juice. And I urge everyone out there to really go and get a copy of this book. And if you're going to be listening to this podcast once, then I think you need to listen to it three or four times because Evie's got so much good stuff. I'm going to be listening to it over and over again because I want to keep remembering what she said. And remember what I said before on a previous podcast, my bad memory. No, the bad memory. So I'm going to keep working on that and making it better. Evie, I I just want to say thank you so much for coming to join us on the show. Ladies and gentlemen, what a rock star this lady is. Thank you so much, Spencer. It was such a pleasure. I'm definitely going to reach out and get your book as well. So I'm so thankful for being on and uh, for you being such a gracious host. I appreciate it. Thank you. All the best to you and your producer. Thank you. Thank you very much. Fantastic episode of this podcast. Evie was just, wow, what can I say? Secret Service agent, lie detectors, police force, 9-11, written a book, TV star, worked with all the presidents. I mean, what else do you need inside the content of a podcast apart from someone that's like that that can share those kind of stories? Hope you enjoyed it as much as I So it's always important to mention people that you partner with and partners for the podcast are Najahi events and Najahi tribe. Now, Najahi sounds like an unusual word and it is, but it's Arabic for my success. And Najahi have brought some of the world leading public speakers, motivational speakers, inspirational leaders across to Dubai over the course of the years and Abu Dhabi, mind you. And Najahi brought, I don't know, people like Tony Robbins, ever heard of him? Okay, Nick Vujicic, no arms, no legs, no worries. Lisa Nichols, Prince EA, Jay Shetty, uh, Alicia Keys. 
and people like this and they bring them in and they run events and from those events we go and we learn from these incredible people. On top of that they launched the Najahi tribe recently where they have a collective of the world's greatest trainers that literally you can join, become a member of, take advantage of a training from all of these different people, like real experts in their field. I've got a sneaky suspicion I might be one of them as well. But anyway, <laughs> hopefully you will go and check them out for me because you enjoy these episodes of the podcast. And remember, it's always team effort and I can't do it without the support of these people. So go check out Najahi Events, N-A-J-A-H-I events.com. The podcast, do me a favor, please. Go and give it a five-star rating on iTunes if you can. I'll go to SoundCloud or Spotify or any other podcast app. Leave some positive comments because more people that hear this, more people that see this, the more exposure it gets. And then we can build that audience of people that can enjoy this content just as much as you. Go on, get it done. Go on. I'll see you soon.